0: Extraordinary Districts. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed-Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high-quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're doing something a little different, and I have to say, it makes me a little nervous. I'm used to being the interviewer, asking questions, but today, Tangie is going to be the interviewer. She is going to ask me about my new book, Districts That Succeed. Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement. It will be published next month by Harvard Education Press. So, and I say this with great trepidation, take it away, Tanji.
1: Okay, Karen. Well, I have to say I'm excited about being able to chat with you about your book. I've been a fan of your work uh, ever since we met. I can honestly admit that I hadn't known about your work before coming to EdTrust, but after having spent time reading it and having spent time talking with you and your other work, I'm super fascinated about how you approach this idea about what it means for schools to succeed with a focus on populations. Many people, if they were honest, don't expect the students there to succeed. So it gives me great pleasure to spend some time today to chat with you. So let's go and get to it. Question number one. So uh, as you read this, as you wrote this and you you sat down and thought about this book in relation to the other three books that you have, what are you hoping your readers are going to learn in this book that may surprise them? So
0: I I don't know that this will surprise prize readers or not, but one thing I hope they will learn is that there are commonalities between little itty-bitty Lane School District in southeastern Oklahoma and Valley Stream 30 in Nassau County, New York, and huge Chicago, Illinois. In each of the districts I profile in my book, there are systems and structures that allow educators to study the data and work together to collaboratively improve instruction. You know, the context of each of these districts, of course, are very different, but at their heart, they have educators who believe in the capacity of their students to learn and believe they have a responsibility to figure out how to teach them. And that is kind of a line that runs through all my work. If, for listeners who don't know, I uh, it, it's true, I've written three books prior to this and co-authored a fourth. And they've all been focused on schools, and this is the first time I've really taken a look at districts. And the reason I'm doing that is because over the years, some of the schools I've profiled have fallen apart, and um, it has led to a whole critique of my work. As well, if the schools don't maintain their excellence, were they really excellent? You know, were the cult, were the systems, were the was the culture really embedded in the school or was it a flash in the pan, you know, success by an individual principal who, you know, moved on? And what has been borne in on me is, A, successful schools are not uh, perpetual motion machines. You can't just set them up and let them work. You ha- they need continual high quality expert leadership. And two, if the, uh, you can fix schools all you want, if the districts they live in are dysfunctional, they will not stay fixed. So it made me want to, you know, find functional districts by which I meant high performing or rapidly improving districts that serve large percentages of students of color or students uh, who live in poverty. So that's how I define, you know, uh, effective districts. It's the same as my definition of effective schools. And when I say children of color, uh, specifically, I'm looking at African-American children, Hispanic children, and uh, Native American children.
1: So Karen, you know, you've talked a lot about the use of data and, and how important data is in making decisions. And you and I in our various you know, conversations have talked about the work of Sean Reardon. So can you help us understand, help the listeners understand how Sean Reardon's work became a catalyst for how you made decisions regarding which schools, you know, to choose during your investigation? So
0: just to step back just a minute, excuse me, Sean Reardon is the Professor of Poverty and Educational Opportunity, I think I've got his title right at Stanford University. I, I kind of consider him a bit of a uh, an intellectual descendant of uh, James Coleman. So, James, so so we have to step back even even further. but James Coleman took what used enormous data sets, particularly for the time uh, in the 1960s, to try and figure out, what the effect of schools were was, is. Um, and he did a huge study of thousands of uh, schools and hundreds of thousands of students. He gave, he gave um, uh, achievement tests and took a lot of demographic data. And he came out with a report in 1965 that set, basically it, it had a lot of conclusions, but one of them was that student background trumped what schools do. And uh, that has had a tremendously baleful, I would, I would say baleful effect on education. And in fact, uh, President Johnson tried to bury it, but he was unsuccessful. Uh, It has been one of the most consequential social science studies ever. But in fact, he, one of the things he said was, some schools seem to have more of an effect than others, particularly on African-American children. And he said, this, this needs a lot more research. And um, not enough people really pay attention to that part of his study. They much more pay attention to the effect of poverty, the effect of uh, family education background, and so on and so forth. Sean Reardon is doing the same kind of basic work, but I think he's trying to avoid the baleful effect of James Coleman. Um, But what he has done, and I I consider him my rescuer, because just as I was kind of thinking, I need to look at districts. How am I going to even find districts, right? How am I even going to navigate this? There are almost 13, there are almost 14,000 districts in the country Tiny ones, big ones. Like, how, how am I going to do this? Sean Reardon came out with his uh, initial analysis in 2016 uh, where he put almost every district in the country on a common scale of socioeconomics of the students of the district and academic achievement. Um, and this is really complicated work. For one, he did not use the free and reduced price meals which a lot of people have used, it's become less useful over the years for a variety of reasons. Um, Instead, he used the community survey of the U.S. Census, which allows for a a bit broader look at the, the students of a school district. And then, you know, in terms of academic achievement, well, you know, the kids in Maryland don't take the same test as the kids in Virginia and the kids in montana and wyoming so how do you you know how how can you do that what he did was equate through the national assessment of educational progress and this is a complicated kind of thing to do but he did it it took him and a team of researchers about four years so that's how complicated we're talking and he has been updating his incredible yeah he's been updating his data sets and um but The first time he came out with that data set in the New York Times, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I (laughs) hovered around the big tendency. I mean, the big pattern that he found is the same as what James Coleman found, which is as the poverty of districts increases, academic, uh, academic achievement tends to decrease. But there are two really interesting things. One is. At every income level that he set out, there are about four grade levels difference between the bottom and the top. So in other words, the kids whose families make about $50,000 a year and have similar socioeconomic backgrounds, they could be in a district that is two grade levels below uh, the national average or two grade levels above the national average. That's four grade levels difference. If we could just, like, if we just brought kids up to where the, the top of their socioeconomic standard, that wouldn't be good enough. We'd still have a real equity problem. Alfred Tatum would not be happy. But we wouldn't have the same kind of horrendous disparities. That we have that, going on that now. That we have today. Yeah. So that's one thing that came out. And the other is, there are some really interesting outliers, and so that's what I focused on. I focused on the outliers. So, for example, Steubenville, Ohio, really stands out as an outlier, particularly at third and fourth grade uh, levels. They are their kids are competing with students at the really some of the wealthiest districts in the country, and it is a very poor, impoverished you know, Appalachian Ohio city. Uh, think Youngstown, only teeny. You know, it's like a teeny youngstown, right? Uh, so, you know, so there's Steubenville uh, sitting right there. And I have written about Steubenville before. Yeah, I you have. We've talked with them. Right. I And exactly, we've talked with them on this podcast. And you can see very thoughtful, systematic thinking about how to serve students. One of the questions I asked uh, Sean Raiden was, where are African-American students doing the best, no matter what their socioeconomic background. Just right. tell me the that's, district
1: where like, they're... That's the question. Who's Who, for for whatever reason, it, we can't seem in this country to figure that out. So who, what did he say?
0: Who's doing well, it? He, he said, actually, the very top district is his hometown, Wyoming, Ohio, a very wealthy little um, uh, suburb of Cincinnati with not many African-American students. And... And I actually spent some time looking at Wyoming, Ohio, and they have some interesting things going on, actually. But I decided it was just too wealthy too, Mm -hmm. you know, that it just wouldn't it wouldn't resonate with with educators. So I said, well, what's the second month? You know, like, what's the Mm -hmm. second? Yeah. (laughs) And the second highest is Valley Stream 30, New York, which is a suburb of uh, it's it's in Nassau County, uh, Nassau County being part of Long Island. And I would say one of the most segregated places in the country. In fact, I, in fact, I don't say that. Amy Wells at uh, Columbia, I think. Uh, Amy Stewart Wells wrote a whole paper on this, and uh, it is an incredibly uh, segregated place. Basically, what happened was after World War II, you you had Levittown and then some other, uh, you know, d- uh, developments. Take the overflow from New York City, but they were all segregated. They had mm-hmm. covenants. They had redlining. They had they had the full magilla of segregation, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> and yeah, and right there in good old New York,
0: stick. There is still real estate steering in Nassau County. Uh, a recent investigation by the by Newsday mm-hmm. revealed it is still there. It is still extremely powerful uh, real estate steering so that you and i if we went to the same real estate agent we would be sent to different homes and different towns um in nassau county at, at least the odds are that we would be and so nassau county still segregated and what has happened is that the close in suburbs that once housed italian americans jewish americans irish americans As African-Americans and Hispanics moved in and South Asians to some extent, uh, the Italians, the Jews, the Irish, they moved out farther, farther, farther on the island. So Mm -hmm. you've got Suffolk County, which is much more white than Nassau County. So Nassau County is an incredibly diverse place if you look overall. But within the county, it's very segregated. Anyway... My point being, uh, that was a little bit of a digression, but um, the point being that Valley Stream 30 is knocking the socks off of all the state assessments, any measure that you want. Valley Stream 30 is knocking the socks off the achievement and, you know, all kinds of great things. And they're just a wonderfully coherent district. It's not a big district, but it the percentage of African-American students in Valley Stream 30 who meet or exceed standards, New York State standards, is way higher than white students in the state. Same thing for Hispanic students, same, same thing for students from low-income uh, families. So they are, you know, they are really uh, doing tre- tremendously, and when, one of the things that is so interesting is they were so totally not interested in the idea that they could be number two in the nation because not all their students are meeting state standards yet. And right, they the, will not be happy until, until all they all student.
1: do. And yes. that to me is quite the, the ticket, right? This, this unwavering belief in the every and the all and looking at a school like Valley Stream 30, where, as you've pointed out, sits within this enclave of, continued institutional segregation but they're still able to and you 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 said this word you said coherent right that there's a system of coherence that they adhere to so as readers think about valley stream when they think about this word coherence what are they meant to take away from the importance of a couple of things number one this importance of leadership, and number two, how do leaders create the coherence necessary to do a Valley Stream or become a Valley Stream 30 in their own context?
0: That's uh, that's the $64,000 question, right? Um, so it's it, it seems to me that one of the things is to really take on the responsibility of ensuring that the adults in the schools and districts are able to learn and collaborate at all times. Because it's the it's the teacher's job to ensure that students are learning at all times. It's a principal's job to ensure that teachers are learning at all times. And it's the superintendent's job and the people at the district office to ensure that the principals are learning all the time and are supported in being able to create the systems for their teachers and staff to be learning at all times. So it's, there's a, a bit of a, um, a fractal pattern here that you can see um, in terms of culture and in terms of how people think, okay, you know, the, t- the teachers are thinking about their students all the time. The principals are thinking about their teachers and staff all the time, and the superintendents are thinking about their principals and ensuring not just that they hire well, right? That's um, that's that's important, but you're never going to be able to hire a staff of super people, right? Right. No one's right. Can do no, that. You can't
1: hire no your way past all this. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not just a matter of hiring. It's a matter of setting up the systems of support and um, and the structures of learning so that one of the things I say in the book is that the most powerful question in education is your kids are doing better than mine. What are you doing? Right. And so at a teacher level that, you know, that's a grade level that's studying the data on, you know, the quiz that was given on decimals, you know, huh. Your kids, your kids, you know, were able to translate decimals and fractions much better than my kids. What are you doing? So that's like a very basic question, but it's what leads to improvement. For principals, it might be, you know, your kids did better on the reading. Ass- your third graders did better on the reading assessment than mine. What are you doing? You know, how are you helping your teachers understand reading? instruction for superintendents it might be oh your graduation rates are higher than mine what are you doing like you can do this up and down the profession but in order to do it you have to have certain structures and systems in place and you need a culture of trust right you need that culture of trust because if a teacher says oh, your kids are doing better than mine that teacher has to know that she will be valued for her professional judgment and her professional distance and her ability to look at data and information and not because
1: her kids didn't do that well on that particular assessment, right? Like, yeah, that's critical because, you know, in the book you talk about uh, Ronald Edmonds' idea that, you know, it isn't, in- incumbent on all personnel to be instructionally effective for all pupils, which is what you're talking about here. And right. Idea, Isn't that a great? It's Isn't great. That a great? Like it's, that's my tattoo. <laughs> like like I don't word. do tattoos, every but I'm word. doing that as a tattoo, right? I have like two tattoos in my life, that one and another one. So I'm doing that one. Um, this idea of being you know, committed to instructional effectiveness. And, and one of the other points raised is that you just talked about was this idea that You know, if you're teacher A and I'm teacher B, your students are outperforming mine, I can look at yours. How do we take Edmonds' idea and and use it, but avoid the natural plug and play? I'm going to take yours out and stick it in mine. How do we still make space for context, right? Because you can tell me as teacher A, you know, that you're doing any number of pedagogies but I might try to do the exact same thing you did and it may not work. So I think what Edmonds is trying to do here is make sure that we are absolutely, you know, instructionally effective for all pupils, but how do we push that so that what people learn from your books is the real need for contextual understanding? Yeah. We talk a lot about this, right? So, so just, it,
0: it occurs to me that I should I should just say that one of the things that the book does is it profiles five districts that are either high performing or rapidly improving, and um, and they are very different contexts. So Valley Stream Thirty very different context from Lane Oklahoma, which is in southeastern uh, Oklahoma, and, or Chicago Illinois, or Steubenville, or uh, there's another one.
1: Oh, Chicago, see for Delaware, See for Delaware, see Chicago
0: too. Yeah, right. Each one is very different. It has a different context. It has, you know, they're different size, they're different finance, you know, financial uh, situations, and so on and so forth. But but within that, they still have some basics. They have time. They have a certain number of hours that they know that they. Um, have to use incredibly wisely Um, and they have staff. They have some resources depending on the district. You know, they rarely have sufficient resources. Each one of these districts could really use a lot more money and could, could use it to really good effect. But, but they all kind of operate within the context within which they exist and they make decisions that at their bottom really help the adults in the district keep learning and one of the, one of the things Ronald Edmonds and and just to just to backtrack on him just a minute is one of the things that Ronald Edmonds he was a researcher at Har- also at Harvard he was looking to counter the effect of James Coleman he saw how baleful the influence of the Coleman Report would be. And he he wanted to investigate, well, if, if there are some schools that have a bigger effect, particularly on African-American students and students from low-income families, then what are their characteristics? And that's what he studied. And um, I like to you know, I'm not a researcher, I'm a reporter, but I like to think of my work as being in the line of what he was, um, in in the line of what he was doing. But one of the things he said was, students learn in lots more ways than we are capable of teaching. So that gives us a lot of leeway in particulars, right? I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons I don't actually talk about the very particular ways teachers teach, because I think, that is particular to, those, to, to individual teachers. Teachers do need to find their own individual styles. Principals do need to find their own ways of doing things. So I have focused not on those individual things as much as what's in common among all these leaders. And what's in common is this belief that kids can learn. And the responsibility of the adults who have been hired to teach them, to figure out how they can learn, you know, and and, and to keep working at it. Because it's your best program. The best program that ever existed will only help a some of, percentage. Okay,
1: right. Maybe a third. Right. Because it's always. Maybe it's a third. All, maybe, maybe two right. thirds. Maybe. Maybe you will need
0: just a brilliant program, a miracle program. It'll help 80%.
1: There's
0: still 20%. There's still
1: 20%. Right. And I I think that's right. I think we have to be willing. I think there's become this idea that somehow teaching should not be as hard as it is. Mm. You know, I think we were laughing last week about Louisa Motes when she said, you know, teaching reading actually is rocket science. Like teaching kids to learn stuff and then learn how to do stuff is really hard. And so like, it's really hard. It's it's really hard and takes a lot of effort. And somehow it's become this idea that teaching being hard is kind of surprising, you know? Um, And so that takes me to my next question is, as we think towards this coming school year, there's going to be a lot of hand wringing about, you know, a lot of different and I don't want to use this word lightly, but things and areas, right? Like, you know, whether to assume the posture that kids are going to be behind, whether to assume this idea that whether you accelerate, whether you use tutoring, whether you use, you know, extended learning, all these different facets of how to address what's going to be a very dynamic year. You know, we think this year was dynamic and it was, but this coming school year, I think it's proving, is gonna to prove to be as, as dynamic because I think parents are gonna be making lots of decisions. And so, my question then is what can be a critical takeaway from your book, from this new book, that leaders and educators can take as they begin to plan for the coming school year? So, one thing I think
0: is, that comes through very clearly in each of the districts that I profile, and all the schools that I've profiled in the past, is a really clear desire to know exactly where students are. And and a commitment to sort of figuring that out. What do they know? What do they need to know? And how do we move them from here to there? Um, and it worries me. I, I understand the, the uh, reluctance to put kids through a Reading assessment and a math assessment, particularly because n- none of these assessments is great. There is not a great assessment, right? So let's just like name that, yeah, that, just say it. That's right. let name right. it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Each of them could use some work, but that's going to always be true. There, there's always going to be some wrongness about an assessment, but we have to have some clue as to whether kids are reading as to whether kids are learning about science, about social studies, about, you know, about history. I I prefer history to social studies, but whatever. (laughs) Um, We have to have some way of assessing, and it can't simply be on the teachers. Right. Partly partly because it cannot, not because they're stupid or they don't have any sense of where their students are. That's not the point. The point is when you're mired in, first grade, you don't necessarily have a real connection to kindergarten and second grade and where kids were, where kids need to be. You need some kind of scale. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. it's really, it's just very, very difficult to understand where where your students should be, where they can be. So I'm worried that there is a movement to stop assessing students this year. And you know, there are difficulties with administering the assessments. There are difficulties. There are lots and lots of difficulties. But if we don't have some way of measuring where kids are, as flawed as it may, might be, I do worry that we will just kind of throw our hands up and say, oh, they're behind, behind, or oh, it's not so bad. Well, what is it?
1: Right, <laughs> like, we need to know what the it is. We need and, and, to know, and, right? We and need both, to know what the it is. That's right. And, and Dr. Tatum and Dr. Shanahan both said we need information. You know, how can we see the assessments as a tool of information, as opposed right. to this hammer that we use strictly for holding people, quote unquote, accountable to something. You know, we've got right. to get it's ourselves not, past that. It's not about accountability.
0: No. It's about it's knowledge. A, it's a, yeah, it's about knowledge. I I, I saw a reference to a uh, Dr. Ho, I think, at Harvard, who called it an academic census. Yes. which I thought was a nice way. Nice of, way of
1: saying that. Yeah, of putting
0: it. It's not about accountability. Take accountability off the table if you want. I mean. You should I'm at the end of morning. an account. Yeah, I'm kind of an accountability person, but like this year, next year, maybe maybe lighten up on the accountability. But we still need to know.
1: We need to know. Like and I think parents want to, want to know. know. I was reading somewhere a gentleman who I think both of us uh, follow on Twitter, Citizen Stewart. He had taken his children to uh, do an assessment and it was strictly voluntary. So, you know, parents could opt in or opt out. He said. The parking lot was packed with parents taking their student, their kids, to this, you know, district assessment. So I think there's this misnomer that's that, interesting. I missed I missed yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it's really interesting. I think there's um, an assumption because those who are speaking the loudest right now tend to be those who don't want assessments. But there's a contingency of parents who know the value of understanding where their students are and they want to know. And so I think that's a really important piece to keep in mind that we need to know.
0: Well, and we need to know, parents need to know. And then as a profession, what we need is to know, well, like my assumption is Seaford's going to come out of this, not looking too bad, but I don't really know that. Right. I don't know that. I won't know that unless they, take some kind of assessment that does something and compares in some way to the rest of the state. That's right. Right. If we don't assess, then we're just left with our prejudices. Like, I like Seaford, and, you know, I like Seaford, and I think they've done really good work, and I can document that they did really good work up until 2019, but... You don't know. Does that carry through the pandemic? That's right. I'd like to think so, but I don't know. And so, without having some kind of idea, some kind of state level assessment, we just can't know. And if we did find out, let us say that we found out that Seaford comes out looking pretty good in relation to the state. Well, then people should know what it is Seaford's doing, right? You know, right. then we can that we can I- use this data to identify, to expose, to do what Mel Ainscow in uh, in the UK calls expose and learn from expertise. That's right.
1: That's what we need we to be need able to do. We need to be able to do that for sure. Particularly, like you said, without it, without something concrete, we would be left to our assumptions about where certain students are. And that will always negatively impact the most perpetually mar- marginalized students in our society—they will be always relegated to you know some place on the margins of, of learning. But I want to think because all, the assumptions in because this the assumptions country are that's such. right are such right yeah. Yeah. hence not your title. because necessarily not because they, they are. are that's right it's because, <laughs> of the, because assumptions. Of the assumptions and and yeah. the assumptions lead the behavior right so the assumptions about you know where students are or are not are going to lead the behaviors you know, and and that's really something that we have to be willing to name. And I think it's really important that we both know that we've named it here and that we continue to push for, you know, the right kind of assessments. We know it's not going to be perfect, but we've got to have something. Um, want to be thinking about leadership. That is your heart and and you take leadership. It It is my heart. It is your heart and you take it very seriously. Why do you think leadership doesn't get as much attention as as you know that it should, because you understand the value of it. Why do we not spend as much time and energy in the role of leadership in student learning? I mean, I
0: don't know that I have the full answer, but I think what happened in sort of the school reform movement that has been pretty dominant for a couple of decades, the first iteration was simply to say that schools matter at all, right? Um, Because James Coleman had kind of filled the profession with whatever schools do doesn't really matter. So the the first big push was just to say, no, schools matter. It really does matter what schools do. But then I think there was a little bit of a child's view of a school. A child or a parent thinks of a teacher as enormously powerful. And of course teachers are enormously powerful. They they impart or withhold knowledge and uh, approval and you know I mean there's there's just a lot that is between the relation in that relationship between teachers and students. It is an enormously powerful relationship and I'm not saying it isn't but within a school context within a district context Teachers are actually the small cogs in the wheel, right? They do not set the. They do not set the master schedules. They do not set the budgets. They do not approve. Generally speaking, in in what I would call sort of typical schools and districts, they do not um, uh, uh, adopt curricula. They do not. Uh, set up the data meetings. They do not set up the assessments except for their own little quizzes. You know, they don't have control over the big levers of
1: Of, of learning. Yeah, the the operational structures, they become the enactors of it as opposed to the propagators of it. Yeah.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. exactly. Now, in highly functional schools and districts, they do play important roles in all of that, uh, in in all those systems. But in the typical school and district, they do not. And so we just misunderstood the power relationship, it seems to me. Individual teachers have a great deal of power over their classrooms. That's pretty much it. They do not control school culture. They do not control, you know, anything else. And so um, I think there was just a basic misunderstanding of what was important. And so there's been an enormous focus on individual teachers. There was a huge effort to to be able to identify high performing teachers and low performing teachers and mediocre teachers and get rid of the low performing teachers and hire more great teachers. And you know, it 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 actually I think was a dead end. You can we can't hire and fire our way out of this problem. No, you cannot right?
1: because it doesn't work. It, it the to adopting that business model and trying to retrofit that into a school dynamic simply doesn't work um, because it is so relational and, and you're not dealing with cogs and wheels. You're dealing with the human experience at all times, you know, in, in full display. So, yeah. That's cannot, right. And yeah, you
0: know. whereas school leaders actually do control a huge amount. And I am convinced that, School improvement is really the unit. Schools are the unit of change. The reason I looked at districts was because dysfunctional districts undermine that. And functional districts support school improvement. And so what does that, you know, what do those two things look like? What does a dysfunctional district do and what does a functional district do? I I just think we went down a wrong track um, on the, on the, good teacher bad teacher you know reform efforts and i think
1: they're over i mean yeah. i don't i, I think well I they're think almost they i think they're it. they're not doing it quite as much i think they sort of like swept it under the rug but there's still this sort of idea that there are inherently good inherently bad when we all as an educator have been in the classroom for a number of years, we are good or bad on a given day in a given moment and time. <laughs> you know? Well and, and, and I think so that's so many teachers really have said
0: to me, I wasn't a good teacher until I came here.
1: Right. Right. I, I wasn't I, my I, best until I did this. I wasn't right. You know, I thought I, I was a good, good teacher. teacher. I was until as, good a
0: as I could be.
1: As that's right. It until it really I wasn't. understood, until I learned, until I began, you know, being a good anything is always up for grabs and it's always interpreted and it's always something that's on a continuum. And so this idea that teachers are, you know, sort of statically good or statically bad is definitely harmful to them, the profession and their students, I would believe. I I believe. I also think the idea that any
0: individual teacher can possibly know enough No teach every one of his or her no. teacher, students every year it's impossible whatever. it's impossible it's impossible oh, I by teachers,
1: marshalling the yeah. power of a school of a Can school that's really, right that's right I've told teachers that all the time it's it's just too much it's too much on one individual to think that that they could do that but elementary school teachers oh please they need
0: to know everything everything
1: Oh, and secondary everything. teachers need
0: to teach 150 students a day. Right, I mean, and
1: then, right. The balance they're, they're of possible, yeah, yeah. The, the they're balance impossible. of how yeah. we do this here is is quite a fascination in ineffectiveness.
0: Right. <laughs> you so know, how do
1: we? How so do how we, do
0: we set up the structures and systems that actually ensure that all students will learn? It's not just about hiring teachers.
1: It's not just about that. And I think that 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 sort of brings us as we bring our time together. um, It's been great talking to you from this side of the microphone and and asking you the questions. Um, From which of the schools do you think you learned the most about, say, I don't know, pick a topic, maybe reading or leadership or school culture? Which ones do you think you learned the most from?
0: So I think I learned the most about reading from Cottonwood and Lane in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I think I learned the most about kind of program implementation and, and school and district leadership around that from Seaford. I learned the most about systems to help adults keep learning from Valley Stream 30. I think I learned the most about what it means to have coherence from Steubenville, where their motto is, systems elevate averages. And I think I learned the most about what is possible in a large district uh, from Chicago. And you, you mentioned that very few people would understand that Chicago has been improving. I think that is a mark of how we have allowed our expectations around children of color and low-income children to cloud us, the data is overwhelming, not just from state assessment data, but from the NAEP data, because Chicago uh, participates as part of, you know, as if it were a state, high school graduation data. It has not only that, but it has been studied by some of the best education researchers in the country at the University of Chicago of Chicago Consortium on School Research, and yet people are still surprised. Really, Chicago? Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) really Chicago.
1: (laughs) Right, really Chicago, imagine. Really
0: Chicago. That doesn't mean it's where it needs to be. It is not. It is absolutely not where it needs to be. But the coming together of the community, the philanthropic community, the business community, the academic community, the education community... Bringing all that together in a lot, I mean, there was a lot of fits and starts and difficulties and like nothing is easy in a, in a district like Chicago. And yet it has demonstrated that it is possible to improve a public institution in a dysfunctional political system with inadequate resources. Like, like, right. It can get, you right. Want, your book title. You can it can still still be done. done. That's right. It can it, be it done. It can still improve. Mm-hmm. It's not where it needs to be, but it has improved. And that's really an important um, it's an important lesson, it seems to me, in democracy, because it demonstrates that there can be a democratic improvement of an institution. Right.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: So uh, that was a long answer. I'm no,
1: I think that's right. I, that was all I was that was my fascinating piece. Like how do you determine what you learn from each? Because they're so different, as you said. So as we wrap our time up together, last question. Um and what are your hopes for this book? Oh, that it changes the world, of course. <laughs> of course. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> done, done and done. done. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> we can all go home now. World changed. <laughs> Well, I mean I hope
0: educators see and are able to see in it um, the possibilities that they have, no matter where they are, to think through, okay, so we don't have we don't have the philanthropic community of Chicago, but what do we have? Like what resource can we bring to bear? Oh, well, we could work with the local cable company to provide you know Wi-Fi. I mean, every district has its own, Resources that it can draw on. They don't have the University of Chicago, uh, you know, but they have a community college that can provide classes for the high school students. Mm -hmm. You know, like they've got something. They've got something that they uh, that they can draw on, that they can use, that they can think through. Um, Steubenville doesn't have, Steubenville has one tiny little Franciscan college, right? It doesn't have a university, but it, ha- but it does have the Pittsburgh airport and it has, you know, only 25 miles away and it has partnered with them and it started a pilot program hmm. Like for
1: pilots, for pilots. Right. <laughs> Not a pilot, a pilot right. program to teach students for how pilots, to become pilots. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Moment you know, of clarity on that. That's right. Like So, I so yeah, mean, everybody has, has something. something that they can draw on. That's yes. right. That is absolutely
0: right. So so that that's what I hope. Yes.
1: Well, this has been
0: such a pleasure to uh, well, thank interview you, you. You weren't too mean to me. No, I
1: felt <laughs> that was you were like, oh, my gosh, so <laughs> nervous. But no, this has been great. I've learned a lot, as I have always, whenever we have the opportunity to come together and chat. So it's been a pleasure.
0: That wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. We've been talking about my new book districts that succeed that will be out next month from Harvard Education Press. If you're interested, you can go on their website and pre-order it. It will be available I think May 25th. This uh is the final conversation we're going to have for this season. The great thing about podcasts is you just make up what how long your seasons are and <laughs> right. we've made up that yeah. 20 20 episodes is this season That's is right. season 4. Of- <laughs> Right. Um, So it's been an amazing season. Uh, You and I have talked with some thoughtful and expert educators, some of them profiled in my book, uh, about how they're operating schools and districts during a pandemic. We've had extended conversation with some of the top experts in the country about reading instruction. We had a great conversation about new research, about the importance of school leadership. And One week when you were off, Tangie, I got to have a conversation with Freeman Hrabowski, who I consider to be the best university president in the country. Sorry, I missed that. That would have been fabulous. Yeah, you would have have enjoyed it. Um, I hope listeners have enjoyed listening to the podcast as much as we have enjoyed producing them. And if you haven't heard them, go back and listen. That's the great thing about podcasts. You can go back and listen. But it's time for us to take a break and kind of regroup. When we figure out our next step, we'll let you know. So be sure to subscribe so that you'll get a notification when there's a new episode. I want to thank everyone at Ed Trust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed-Marshall. See you next time.